Many of you know who Elizabeth Elliot was. Elizabeth Elliot was married to her husband, Jim, and they were missionaries. Well, you may not know, but after her husband, Jim, died, her first husband, she got remarried. And after uh, her, her husband was there, her second husband, she was married for several years. And, and she realized uh, after a while that he got sick, and he ended up dying, and it was really tragic. And what she had said was, as she was wrestling with just mourning now the loss of a, a second husband that had died, uh, she was asking the question, she said, what things have not changed even though my husband has died? What things have not changed even though my husband had died? And as she was mourning and grieving and doing some deep reflecting on just her own life and her circumstances, as she realized the thing that had not yet changed was God. Even though her world around her had changed, all of her circumstances had changed, God had not changed. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As we look through the book of Daniel, I would only imagine that Daniel and his three friends, they were asking the same question. They were asking the question, what hasn't changed because everything in our lives have changed. They were saying, we, we no longer live in a world of freedom. We are now under a tyrant ruler who is a godless secular ruler. And they were saying, what do we do? What do we do? But yet, I would only imagine that they realize that God has not changed. And that is the book or the theme of the book of Daniel, in that no matter where you find yourself in, and if circumstances have changed, God hasn't. That God is sovereign in the midst of change. That he is our ruler and he reigns on our behalf. And that's what we will see throughout this entire book. There are two sections that consist and are made up of Daniel. The first section is chapters 1 through 6. And it gives us six different historical accounts of God's people who remain faithful while living in a toxic culture. Six different accounts of God's people being faithful and persevering while they were being persecuted or while they were living in really difficult times in a difficult world. The second section of the book starts in chapter 7 going through chapter 12, and it covers four different apocalyptic visions that really give a bleak and dark future for God's people. But in the end, it turns around talking about how there would be an anointed one, a Messiah who would come and deliver God's people uh, from not only their sins, but would, would, would deliver them back to their homeland. So again, bleak prophecies, apocalyptic prophecies, but yet some positive things to it. But as you put the two sections together of the book, the main theme is that God is in control even when life appears out of control. So I don't know about you, but I'm excited about this book. Christ's Covenant's never gone through this book in our 26-year history, and we're going to go through the entire book. It may take us through the summer. We'll find out. But are you ready to jump in? We're going to be looking at lengthy, uh, lengthy text each week. So turn with me to Daniel chapter 1, and we will go through the entire first chapter, Daniel chapter 1. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. Let's look at God's word together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. 
And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, he said, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them. And among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So a lengthy passage, but a great way to start this wonderful book. And as we look through this lengthy text, we're going to see three things. The first thing we'll see is we'll see a sovereign plan in verses 1 and 2. Then we'll look at a ruler scheme in verses 3 through 7. And then we'll finish by looking at a young man's courage in verses 8 through 21. So first, we'll see a divine sovereign plan. Look again at verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
The background of the book of Daniel comes from 2 Kings chapter 24. And in 2 Kings chapter 24, you will see a series of three different invasions by the empire of Babylon or from the empire of Babylon and the king Nebuchadnezzar to Jerusalem and God's people. The first invasion is when this book took place. It was in 605 BC when King Nebuchadnezzar came in and he besieged Jerusalem. But he didn't just come in and ransack and and take over Jerusalem. He also (laughs) humiliated the king of Jerusalem by making him his servant or his subject. King Jehoiakim became the subject or servant to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It was pretty humiliating for God's people as their king was now submitting to another king. But here's what I find interesting. The king of Babylon didn't just make the king of Judah his subject. He also went into the temple of God, of God's people, and he took all the furniture and treasuries from it And he took it back to Babylon and placed it in his godless, secular temple. Now, why would he do that? Well, have you ever played the game Capture the Flag? When you were younger or for you high school students, you might be playing the game Capture the Flag. I used to love the game. What is the game Capture the Flag about? Well, you have two teams that are going against each other. You have two flags. They have a base on each team. One team will try to get to the other team's side. They will try to find that flag at that base. And they'll try to bring the flag back to their base while their flag is still intact in there without getting touched or tagged while they're on the other opposing side's field. If they get both flags together, then they win. In the same way, in the ancient Near East during this time, this is how wars were operated. Whenever an opposing nation would defeat another nation, they would go into that enemy nation's temple, take out all the treasuries, bring it back to their temple, and put it in their temple. Why would they do that? Well, it was a symbol that their god or gods were more powerful than their enemy nation's god or gods. And in this case, King Nebuchadnezzar was making a big statement saying, okay, God of Israel, the one true God... Where are you now? You've lost the war. And he's taking all of those temple treasuries and furniture from God's temple into their secular, pagan, godless temple. And he's saying, my gods are more powerful Israelites than your God. And so the new story of the day would have been like this. It would have been, the God of Israel has been defeated by the gods of Babylon. Now we all know that as Christians, that our God always wins. And with God, we're in the majority. But yet, in the world that Daniel and his friends were living in, I'm sure they were wondering, God, where are you? It looks like all hope has been lost. But yet, this is what God does. He orchestrates things behind the scenes. He works behind the scenes, and it's all a part of his divine plan. And oftentimes, we don't know the plan. We don't see the plan. Sometimes, we don't see God at work, but he's always at work, and he's doing things for his glory and for his purposes. And in this case, we know off the bat in this book 
Who is in control? It's not King Nebuchadnezzar. It's God. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave. Three different times you will see those three words. The Lord gave in chapter 1. And we'll cover all of them. This is the first time. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of King Nebuchadnezzar. Why in the world would God do that? Why would he do that? doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem very loving. Well, we know first that God did it because he fulfilled a prophecy from Isaiah that was given many years before. This took place. Isaiah 39, verse 6 and 7, we read, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Right there in Isaiah gives a prophecy about what was taking place in Daniel chapter 1. That one day Babylon would come, and the king would win, and he would take some of the prized youthful men of the people of Jerusalem, of the Israelites, and he would bring them back, and he would train them. This is all part of God's plan. But again, how did all this unravel? How did Daniel find himself living in a toxic culture? I'll tell you the reason. It was because of God's people. That's why they were the ones that caused all of this. In fact, when you go to the account in 2 Kings chapter 24, it says, Surely these things happened to Judah according to the Lord's command. In order to remove them from his presence because of the sins of Manasseh, And all he had done, including the shedding of innocent blood. For he had filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord was not willing to forgive. Did you hear that? The Lord was not willing to forgive Manasseh and the people of God because they shed innocent blood. Enough was enough. God's people had drifted and drifted and drifted away from him. And they were doing ludicrous things. And God said, I can't put up with this anymore. Judgment will come upon my people because they have completely left me and they have lost their minds. You know, my friends, we're living in times that are very similar. We're finding ourselves at times in a foreign land where there's a lot of shedding of innocent blood that's taking place. We got to be careful. Because what happened to Jerusalem in these days could happen to us if we're not careful. That's the reason why all this was taking place. God's people kept sinning. They kept drifting away from him. And God fulfilled his prophecy by doing this. But here's the thing that I want you to understand about sin and the sovereignty of God. Professor N. Duguid, he said that no sinful act ever catches God by surprise or thwarts his sovereign will. Everything that we experience in life, no matter how difficult or apparently meaningless it may seem, is God's purpose for us. No sinful act ever catches God by surprise or it changes his sovereign will. Everything we experience in life, no matter how difficult or meaningless it may seem, is God's purpose for us. Can God turn bad things into good? Yes. Even when we sin, God can use that eventually to fulfill his purposes. 
don't go and sin, but God can change bad things for the good. And even though the news story of the day was God had lost, no, my friends, God never loses. God was working out his sovereign plan. What else do we see in Daniel 1? We see a ruler scheme. Look again at verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. You know, what I find interesting here is that the ruler had a scheme, and it was a long-view scheme. It was a long-term strategic plan. And what King Nebuchadnezzar intended to do was he intended to indoctrinate the youth of God's people. He intended to educate the young minds into thinking the way he wanted them to think, into living the way he wanted them to live. That's a long-term view. King Nebuchadnezzar was no dummy. He was smart. And he knew, if I'm going to take over Jerusalem, and if I'm going to keep my power over Jerusalem, I have to win over its people. And it starts with the youth. And if I can win over the youth... As they get older, they'll become one of us, and we won't have people who rebel against us. Nebuchadnezzar was really smart. I think about China today and how they have a long-term view, and that's what they're doing. This is how Satan operates. He operates by using wicked kings and rulers to have these kind of schemes, to indoctrinate the youth. And many scholars would believe that Daniel and his friends were between the ages of 15 and 17. We have some 15 to 17-year-olds in this room right now. What Nebuchadnezzar was trying to do was, if I can get these young men, 15 to 17, and if I can make them my own in the future, I will have it. I will have the future. We will have glorious days ahead. So how did he try to indoctrinate Daniel and his friends. Well, first, he put them in Babylon University. Three-year school. And fortunately, the last hundred years, we've been able to discover through archaeology many different cuneiform tablets that help us to understand Babylonian literature and what Daniel and his friends would have studied. And there's a couple things they would have studied. They would have learned about the great pagan gods and goddesses and the different myths and legends about creation, even about the flood, The Gilgamesh epic would be one. Uh, They would have learned about astronomy, math, and medicine. They would have even studied omens, and they would learn how to interpret dreams. But the education that these young men would have received was prominently focused on magic, on sorcery, and on astrology. So Daniel and his friends would no longer be learning about the God of Israel, the one true God. They would have learned about many gods. They would have learned about secular things. And the whole intention of Nebuchadnezzar and of Babylon was to change the way these people thought. And if they thought about them, then they would be good. 
And that's what took place. But you know, the biggest tragedy of it all is that the Babylonians didn't just try to indoctrinate the minds of these young people. They also changed their names, their identity. You know, that the names that Daniel and his three friends had initially, originally, were names that reflected God, the Lord. But the Babylonians changed their names to reflect that of the Babylonian gods. Let me give you an example. Daniel, his name means God is my judge. His new Babylonian name is Belshazzar. Bel, protect his life. Bel was a god, uh, was a god that Babylon believed in. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. The Babylonian name is Shadrach, the command of Aku, yet another pagan god. Mishael was the name he received in Israel. Who is what God is? Meshach, who is what Aku is? Another pagan god represented. And Azariah, the Lord is a helper. Abednego, the servant of the god of Nego. Notice all the different gods represented here. It was a polytheistic religion. And that was the whole purpose of King Nebuchadnezzar. Was to educate these young men in a polytheistic way. To say there are many gods out there that you should believe in. And you should live for. It's your identity. It should become you. No longer believe in the one true God. This whole monotheistic stuff. eh, We don't need that. Come to Babylon. Drink our Kool-Aid. And you'll see that it's far better than what you've experienced. This was the ruler's evil plot. His evil scheme. And I want to remind each and every one of us today, as we live in 2023 America, things have changed in our culture. We all know that. And if you're like me, you are staying up at night because what do you think about as an adult? You think about your kids. You think about your grandkids. And what is the common thing that all of us think about and pray about and say? We want our kids to live in a better society than we have. We want to leave it better for them. But yet, are things getting better? It doesn't seem like it. It doesn't seem like it. So I want to encourage you, parents, grandparents, and if you don't have kids and you're an adult in this room, I want you to come and help us at Christ's covenant to be a part of this covenant family. And I want you to go to families and say, mom and dad, how can we help you raise your children in the Lord? When they get to college, we all know what they're being taught at public universities and college. I went to one. And even 20 years ago, I was taught ludicrous things. This is the world we find ourselves in. And as parents, you have the most influence on your kids than you can imagine. You are the primary discipler of your children. So parents, please teach your kids in the ways of God. Teach them the word. Disciple them. Grandparents, you do the same. Don't just pass it on to the parents. I know you've been there, done that. But you still have a primary role as grandparents to teach your grandchildren God's faithfulness in your life. You tell your grandkids stories about how God has been faithful to you throughout the generations. It might blow them away. But again, we cannot lose our kids to the world. But that is Satan's scheme. He wants to indoctrinate our young people to think differently than what we're teaching them. It's a war for the minds of our youth. Students who are here, as you're learning things that are of the world, 
be reminded that this is Satan's scheme to lead you astray. Don't let it happen. (laughs) Stand up for your faith. Ask your mom and dad for help. Ask us for help. We will help you. That's why we're here. We're here to help you. We want you to succeed, and we want you to have a better future. So, so far, we have seen a sovereign plan. We've seen a ruler's scheme. But look here at a young man's courage. Verse 8 might be the most important verse of this chapter. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Okay, let's just think about what we've just talked about. Daniel's changed his name. He's gone through a secular education for three years, but yet he hasn't thrown a fit. He played ball. He played by the rules. He said, you know what? This isn't a hill I'm going to die on. I'm not going to draw a line in the sand with this. I'll play by the rules here. But it gets here to this point where he's asked to do something that is against his convictions. It's against his core beliefs. He's asked to eat and drink from the king's table. Now, there's many scholars debating about what this was all about. Some have said that this was going directly against the Jewish dietary laws of the day. You can look at Leviticus 17, and you will see that eating pork or meat from which blood had not been drained was a problem. So the Babylonian meal could have included meat where the blood hadn't been drained. That could have been an issue, but the wine wasn't really an issue, and so that might not be the case. Another debate was, well, maybe... Uh, maybe, you know, the food was sacrificed to idols. And so that's why Daniel said, I can't go there. But the problem is, is that his vegetables and water could have been sacrificed to idol too. So that's not really a good, uh, a good thing to think about uh, or a good option. So really the key here that we need to think about is that instead that Daniel chose to eat that which grew naturally, grains and vegetables, and to drink water. This suggests that the goal of this simple lifestyle was to constantly remind Daniel of his complete dependence on God and not on King Nebuchadnezzar. In other words, Daniel's saying, okay, I've reached a point now where I can't, I can't abide by the rules of Babylon. I just can't. It goes against my core convictions. And I don't want to be completely dependent on the king and, and the sinful lifestyle that the wine could lead to or that the food could, 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 could develop into. He said, enough is enough. I've drawn the line in the sand. I bring this up because many of you have began to speak up of what's going on in culture, and that can be a good thing. There are certain hills, though, that we don't need to die on. There are gray areas sometimes to certain things. So I would encourage you, don't die on every hill. However, there are black and white issues of our culture today. And those black and white issues that speak directly against God's word, those are the hills that we got to die on. Those are the, time, the things that we need to stand up for. So again, I wouldn't necessarily need to die on every hill because there are gray areas, and that's Daniel's point. He didn't die on every hill. He, he, he went by the name that they gave him. He even was learning the education, but he didn't change. He said, you can change my name and identity, but you can't change my heart. You can't change my mind. He was that firm in his belief. 
But it got to a point where he said, I cannot defile myself. And that's when he spoke up. And notice what he did. I thought it was so interesting. Well, first notice what God did. Verse 9, the second God gave. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. What did Daniel do? He went to the chain of command, the highest chain of command other than the king. And he said, okay, chief of the eunuchs. I really can't go there. This is the hill for me I'm going to die on. I've got to draw a line here. And it said that God gave the chief compassion. The chief of the eunuchs, he could have written Daniel off completely, and he could have sent him straight to Nebuchadnezzar and had him hanged. He could have sent him to prison. But God gave that chief compassion to at least give Daniel a hearing. Did the chief give him what he wanted to hear? No. The chief said, oh, Daniel, I can't do that. If I go back to Nebuchadnezzar and he sees that you aren't performing like the others because I've, uh, because I've allowed you to eat vegetables and drink water, that's going to come back and bite me, and he might even kill me. He said, no, I can't, I can't abide by these wishes. But then notice what Daniel did. Daniel then went lower on the chain of command to his direct supervisor, and he just said, okay, I, I want to test you. If you can just test your servants for 10 days, let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink, then let our appearance and the appearance of the use who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. Right here, Daniel went to another chain of command, his supervisor, and he said, okay, you know what? Why don't you just test this out? And in 10 days, you can see if we're different, the four of us are different than the others who are eating from the king's table. Is that okay? Can we make a deal there? And the servant said, yeah, yeah, let's see it out. Well, we know what happens, right? Ten days go by, and Daniel and his friends, it even says they're fatter in the flesh. But they're studs, right? They're working hard. They're, they're eating well. And they stand out from all the other students. And what does the servant do? The servant said, okay, these guys are on to something. And he didn't make them eat the king's meat or drink the king's wine. You know, what I love about this is the men were then presented to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar said, wow, these four men are really outstanding. They're the best of the best compared to their classmates. But look at verse 17, the third God gave. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. God gave them. It was God. God gave them the ability to retain the knowledge they needed to have. He gave them the competency to perform and outperform the others. He gave them the strength and the appearance to look stronger than the others. God did this. And because God did this, and because of Daniel's courage and his friend's courage, the king really granted their accommodation. You know, as I think about this, I think about you and me and how some of us might find ourselves in a situation at work or at school or maybe in a relationship where you're being asked to lower your standards or to do things that go against your convictions. I would challenge you to speak up. No longer remain silent. Stand up for yourself. Because if you don't stand up for yourself, eventually your rights will be taken away. 
I recently read a book by Eric Metaxas called Letter to the American Church. If you haven't read it, I'd order it today. It's really, really good. Really, it's only about 135 pages. Letter to the American Church. What Metaxas brought up was he brought up about Hitler in the days of Nazi Germany. And he described a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. As Hitler began to gain power over the Germans and he started to get world power, there was a young man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who spoke up against Hitler. He said, wait, 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 wait. Enough's enough here. I got to draw a line in the sand here. And this is what he said. He said, for German Christians, there can only be one savior and that savior is Jesus, not Hitler. Two days after Hitler became chancellor, Bonhoeffer said the idol worship that Hitler was encouraging would make him not a leader, but a misleader. Hitler is encouraging idol worship. He's going to mislead you people. He's not going to lead you. Be careful of this Hitler. Hitler, his whole purpose was to create a Nazified church, a Nazi-driven church. He wanted to purge out the Jews from among the church. That was his purpose. He was evil. That was his scheme. We know his strategy worked for many, many years as he killed millions of people. But you know where he really started was the church. Why did he start at the church? Because they were in Germany. And in Germany, it was filled with a bunch of Lutherans. Martin Luther started the Reformation. The church was vibrant and strong in the years of Hitler. So Hitler knew, if I can get the church, then I'm in good shape. But Bonhoeffer said, wait a second. We can't have a Nazi-driven church. Are you crazy? So what did he and some of his friends do? They started the Confessing Church. It's like a new denomination they started. And they said, the Confessing Church is going to make a stand against what Hitler is doing. Because what he's doing is wrong. It's heretical. And about three, up to 6,000 people joined the Confessing Church. But within that number, only about the 3,000 really signed a declaration against Hitler. You know, it's fascinating. Out of 18,000 pastors in 1935 through 40, 18,000 Lutheran pastors, only about 3,000 stood up against Hitler. Up to six, possibly. But that still leaves us with 12,000 pastors who were silent. You know what Eric Metaxas said as a result of the 12,000 silent pastors? He even said, if just another three, if not 6,000 of the 12,000 Protestant pastors stood with the confessing church and stood up against Hitler, then Hitler would have never succeeded. The church had such great cultural power of the day and influence that Hitler would not have succeeded. But yet... 12,000 pastors were silent. You know, one of uh, Bonhoeffer's friends who remained silent, his name was Martin Niemöller, and Niemöller said these words. He said, first, they came for the socialists, the Nazis, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then the Nazis, they came for the trade unionist, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then the Nazis, they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a Jew. But then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. No one. 
You know, Bonhoeffer, in 1935, he started an illegal seminary. It was shut down quickly by the Gestapo. He was later caught for helping 14 Jews by hiding them, and he was thrown in jail for that. And then after he got out of jail, within three weeks before the war had ended, three weeks before the war had ended, Bonhoeffer was arrested because he was with the plot of the Valkyrie plot. You may have seen that movie, Valkyrie. Bonhoeffer was one of those people who tried to assassinate Hitler. And he was caught by Hitler and others. Hitler identified Bonhoeffer as one of those people plotting to assassinate him. And what did Hitler have Bonhoeffer do? He had him to be hanged. You know what Bonhoeffer's famous quote is? When Christ calls a man... He bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to bid to come and die. Edmund Burke said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Where do I leave this with you? Well, I leave you with a challenge. When there is that hill that you got to die on, die on it. Take a stand. Don't remain quiet because if you remain quiet, your beliefs and your rights or your rights will be taken away. Don't let that happen, my friends. Take a stand. Let's pray.